Hi, everyone. Welcome. My name is Blair Embry. I'm the communications manager for Prison Yoga Project and the host of Prison Yoga Project podcast. And we are thrilled and honored today to be welcoming Lara Land. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. What an honor. Lara Land is a deeply compassionate coach, consultant, and yoga teacher trainer specializing in trauma sensitivity. Her work supports healing trauma, both subtle and significant, and her work trains others to do the same using yoga, meditation, mindfulness, and breathing practices. Lara has spent 25 years studying and sharing yoga asana, chanting, meditation, and philosophy directly from her teachers in India. Her commitment is to honor the traditions of yoga by responding to the needs of each individual using a unique combination of practices and techniques that are appropriate for their personal growth. She's the author of The Essential Guide to Trauma-Sensitive Yoga and the host of Beyond Trauma podcast. Incredible. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. 25 years. I'm getting old. (laughs) (laughs) It's a big number. That's a huge number to celebrate as well. 25 years. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just ever evolving, which is a beautiful thing. Never get bored. Thank you. And traditionally, we start with a centering opportunity. This is an opportunity for our audience of facilitators to see how you facilitate and the style that you facilitate. And then it's also really great for us and everyone to just kind of bring us into the room. When you're ready, will you lead us in a centering opportunity? I would love to. Thank you. So for those of you who would like to, um, I welcome you to settle into some stillness, whatever that looks like for you. There's no right or wrong position. You might be in a chair. You might be leaning against a wall or in your bed, maybe tuning in more today than you might usually to what your body is asking for in this moment, as opposed to maybe something you've been taught is right. What would support you? If that's movement, that's also a choice, right? Leaning into it and feeling into what kind of movement the body wants. And as you feel into that choice that you've made, just knowing that you can make a different choice at any time, that you are so thoroughly allowed to change your mind. Pick a new position. You might notice your feet. Your legs. If there's any place I bring your mind to that you don't want to go, please skip it or make a different choice. Just taking a Relatively quick scan through the body, just noticing I'm here. If here feels like a place you want to be. Knowing you're perfectly allowed to go away at any time. Your mind, 
and to return. You might notice your knees. The space from the knees to the hips. Space from the hips to the shoulders. The front and the back of the body. Sides of the body. You might notice the shoulders down to the elbows. Elbows to wrists. Your hands arriving. Neck and head arriving. Welcoming yourself fully into the space and this moment, which is available for you today. Perhaps recognizing the depth, the weight, the space that you take up. Maybe allowing yourself to take up a little bit more space. Whatever that means to you. Tuning in to any sensations. And knowing you can go away. Or if you choose to, leaning into any sensations arising. Could be the air. Heartbeat. Temperature. Breath. Being inside the body doesn't feel welcoming. You might work with gazing outside, focusing on a spot that feels intriguing or comforting, spot on the floor, on the wall. You might move between an outward focus and an inward focus to support safety and regulation. I'm taking one moment to Notice any place in the body or outside the body that feels good or neutral. Could be a tiny little place that you know you can return to for support. And it can be an inner place or it could be outside. 
feeling of the chair, gaze point. Just recognizing you can bring your mind, your awareness back to that spot at any time. Do you need to downregulate? Come home to a place of safety. Just recognizing that you're always in choice. This is a place to explore. That all your choices are welcome here. And even if those are going away or counter to what you might be used to in these kind of spaces. If your eyes were closed, you might open them. Might take a moment to look around, turning your head from side to side, just bringing yourself visually back into the space before bringing your gaze into the screen. Thank you. Thank you so much, Laura. I'll just get for everyone one more moment to adjust, bring themselves back into the room. I feel like I'm always balancing going really deep into the centering or also staying present <laughs> as the host. Yeah. So, right. <laughs> holding both of those. Um, that was really beautiful and thoughtful. Thank you. Thank you. So we're brought here today under this theme and topic of unveiling trauma, the body's hidden stories and rebuilding relationships. Before we dive in, let's start at the beginning. What's your first memory of yoga or mindfulness? Oh, well, my first memory of yoga is very, very clear. It's senior year of high school, gym class, and we had these fun different units, but one of them was dance, square dance, <laughs> and this was the yoga unit. So that was my first time exposed to yoga, and I specifically remember doing this forward bend, seated forward bend, and just having like stars. <laughs> I was like, whoa, this is something. Um, and it just, uh, it opened up something in me, um, that I wanted to explore and went on to explore for many, many years. That's a pretty incredible that you had the opportunity to practice yoga in your high school. Especially in 1998. <laughs> it's not as common in the schools as it is now. Incredible. So where did your love and study of yoga grow from there? was really interesting because I went to university, Boston University, where I studied theater. And as part of emptying the channel to get ready to take on a character, we would do yoga and breathwork exercises, lots of grounding, lots of breathwork, lots of yoga. The idea being like, 
Um, we want to rid ourselves of our sort of um, reactions that are habitual so that we can react like the character babies, like open channel to being in the moment and responding to our scene partners on stage. Um, and also an aspect of yoga that I don't think is, is talked about a lot, which I, I talk about a bit in my book, freeing the natural voice. So when you're really breathing and opening that channel, the tone of your voice is really tuned to your words and what you want to say. So it's not just that you're saying what you want to say, but that the, the vibration, the tone is really um, the feeling of what you're trying to get across um, to your, you know, whoever you're in conversation with, which I think is a beautiful thing that can come from yoga and that we learned in acting school. I, I really love that. And I resonate with that piece as well. During my first yoga teacher training, I feel like it really supported me in embodying confidence yeah. and, and uh, allowing presence and really just to be able to be yourself when you're a yoga teacher, that you don't have to mimic or copy anyone else's style or voice. And it really comes yeah. from an authentic place. So I love the clearing of the channels first. Yeah, I love that. Um, yeah, that authenticity and that when you're really grounded, um, that, you know, that grounding helps support that breath coming up. And then, you know, it goes through all the sh the chakras, all the centers, and um, and hopefully resonating with the head and the heart, and um, and where we're embodying who we are in the moment. So you had this amazing experience when you were studying theater. What did your studies look like after? How how twenty five years? How how did you get here? Sure, sure, yeah. So um, you know, I'm going through this theater program, but I'm noticing that I'm really into the yoga, also like movement improv. I was getting really into the embodied practices, um, breath work, link later, who wrote the book, Green the Voice, Green the Natural Voice, which is a link later, great uh, vocal teacher. So I'm like, I'm getting really into yoga. Um, I started taking different classes all over Boston. I was lucky, in, you know, I was in the city where there was a lot of yoga. Um, and I had this one class that I really, really liked. It was, I think it was called Power Yoga and it was in a gym and I just loved it. I loved the teacher and I loved doing this class. It was kind of the same sequence all the time and I just enjoyed it. I was exploring a lot of different kinds of yoga at that time. Um, I didn't really know much about, you know, different types of yoga or types of asana, but, um, I just knew that I always liked this class. And uh, when I, I graduated, I moved to New York City, to Brooklyn, and um, I was discovered there that the, the class that I was taking was basically Ashtanga, had been Ashtanga. So I, I started doing uh, some Ashtanga classes in Brooklyn, New York, um, taking like five lead Ashtanga classes a week, which is kind of a weird thing. Um, I had a great teacher who basically told me that she she could see that this is something that was really um, I was really into and passionate about. And she did that very special thing that many teachers don't do, which is she told me, like, I don't think that I can teach you any further. And um, I think I should refer you to some other teachers, which is pretty awesome. Not the competitive 
um, commercial kind of yoga stuff that we see a lot these days. Very generous. And she also didn't tell me, go to this teacher, like her teacher. She gave me three names. And I remember it was very Goldilocks and three bears. <laughs> she told me like, this one will be easy. This one will be medium. And this one will be very difficult. And I went with the, the middle way. <laughs> um, and I, um, so at that time I, I found my next teacher and that teacher was Christopher Hildebrandt. And through him, I got very deep, very quickly into yoga. And he actually took me on my first trip to India, uh, a month long trip. So I was really, really blessed to be able to go with my teacher who had been there before, um, you know, to this strange country for the first time. I, I was 27 and, um, you know, it was a very intense, amazing experience, um, just eye-opening and life-changing. And after I got back from that month, all I could think of is how I could save enough money to go back again. And my teacher said, come back next time for three months. So that was my goal. And um, and within six months, I was back again for a three-month trip. <laughs> and on that trip, um, I was confronted with an opportunity to go to Rwanda. They were looking for a um, female identifying teacher who could work with genocide survivors, um, mainly HIV positive women and children um, in Rwanda. And I was like, that sounds like me. <laughs> um, so I quickly came back to the States again, like raised all this money. You had to find your own way. You had to pay your own way. Um, did a bunch of fundraisers went to Rwanda for three months and went directly to India from there um, to sort of recover. And, you know, after giving so much, go back into my practice. Um, and also to talk to my teacher there about um, teaching in India, um, which I did end up working with um, children who are HIV positive, who had traveled for many days to go to this clinic in India. And I would work with them doing some yoga in the waiting room. So that was pretty um, powerful experience as well. This is an incredible story. And I can really yeah. see the, well, one, I hear commitment. That's really the first thing that comes up to me is that you saw something that you were invested in and that you loved and you just dove right in and your commitment continued to open up doors and opportunities for you. And you just said, yes, and you listened. And that's brave, right? I, I don't I don't know if everyone does that. So I just want to point to that. And that's so beautiful. And I can hear that it's laying this foundation. So you have a nonprofit called Three and a Half Acres Yoga. Yeah. So will you talk about how that formed and maybe how this foundation of your yoga kind of career or beginning informed this need or this want to start the nonprofit? Yeah, yeah. So after that time um, abroad, you know, in, in Rwanda, I learned a lot. I did a lot of self-education and reading books, but also being and all that about um, nonprofits, NGOs, and the, the mistakes that are often made, um, especially going into foreign countries um, and, you know, that saviorism, white saviorism and things like that. And, you know, I did experience that a lot of the people that I met who were there from um, Western countries were tired, bitter, um, sometimes resentful. And that was a shock to me. I was young. You know, I was in my 20s. I was very energetic. 
excited and so I I and naive <laughs> and I just didn't expect that and it was very shocking and upsetting and I wanted to understand more about it and one of the things I wanted to commit to was returning home um, to my own city New York City which you know had also like enough need and creating something that was sustainable um, because what I understood is that it's it's re-traumatizing when you go somewhere and you quote unquote help and then you leave you know, it just, it can feel like abandonment and be abandonment and just start these things again and again. And I think a lot of times, you know, that's why if you, if anyone has gone to volunteer somewhere, sometimes they don't want volunteers unless you can make a long commitment because it's just like you train people and then they're gone. So um, I really wanted to do something close to home and sustainable, um, but I knew I wasn't ready yet um, because I had to be also, um, I, I needed to make sure that like, I had a roof over my head and, um, you know, like I could take care of myself. So I wasn't relying on that. So I opened my own yoga studio, a for-profit yoga studio in my neighborhood and served my community at my studio. Also like all around the neighborhood, um, you know, going to schools, going into the food bank, this and that. But I, I did see that there were just some people that were never going to walk into the studio and there was sort of a limit that of what I could do. Um, with that business and that's you know where I decided okay it's time I think the studio was about um, about four years old and I said okay that's that's steady now and I have enough bandwidth to form the nonprofit. and so I pulled together a lawyer a grant writer (laughs) and uh, someone to like solicit money (laughs) and do events and um, and that came the idea for the nonprofit to bring yoga to um to other nonprofits, particularly like shelters, um, community centers, places that were supporting folks with different services and add yoga to the services they were already getting in order to like make all of what they were doing, you know, better. You know, so like if you're giving people job training, um and resume writing and interview skills, well, like we were talking about, if you have that confidence, if you have that body language, you're going to interview a lot better. Um, so that was sort of our pitch. And as soon as we started doing that, I realized very quickly that yoga teachers were really not prepared to go into those spaces and teach. And so I started developing like protocols and a manual and a training and which eventually became this really, um, really, I think, fantastic training that we have now through Three and a Half Acres Yoga. Thank you. And thank you for speaking to some topics that we talk a lot about at Prison Yoga Project as well, is that there's yoga teacher training for studio. And then there's other other trainings we'll say, right. Maybe there's branches or umbrellas of these other trainings. Um, and just seeing the gaps of awareness to be able to serve all people in our classes. So we talk more about your training and the themes that you work with, with your participants. Sure. Yeah. So there's a lot there. So cut me off and move me around if I, I'm going, yeah, this way or that. Um, But I'll start with what I think is one of the most important things, which is to understand that in any shared space, whether that's a yoga room, a 
a sports team, an office, there is someone there who is a survivor of trauma, probably more than one person. So statistically speaking, if we can just go into any shared space, even a grocery store, and know that in that space, there, there are survivors, there are people in an active trauma response. Um, it just that awareness. So that is one of the first foundational things that we do um, in the class. And we do that in a couple of different ways. One is by talking about the different kinds of factors that could lead to a trauma response. So there are many different factors. Right? I think we're all pretty familiar with um, the single event factor, an attack, or um, an environmental um, you know, factor, something like that. Um, but there are many other things um, that are sometimes ongoing. Um, they can be, there can be some absence, right? Human beings need, um, we need uh, acceptance. We need, uh, especially as children, we need to be taken care of. We need touch. So there's, there's sometimes we don't see what isn't there and how that can lead to trauma. Um, there's religious trauma, there's race-based trauma. And a lot of these things go unnoticed. Um, and therefore, they're harder for people to even admit to, they're harder for people to get services around, help around. Um, they're becoming more spoken about, but um, some of you know, there's a lot of there are a lot of studies that show we can bounce back and be quite resilient from that like single time um, event. But these ongoing um, events can be harder to detect and harder for people to get the right services around. So there are a lot of different kinds of events that can lead to a trauma response. We need to understand that. We need to understand that two people going through the same event can have a different response. Um, and that's for just so many reasons. Um, you know, our background, our past history of trauma. In that moment, were we able to get away, run, fight back? Um, and then things like resources, right? Access to resources, um, internal resourcing. So like tools, skill sets, the kind of things we learn in yoga and somatic experiencing. Um, and then also those very important outer resources like um, talk therapy. And um, they're both important. I believe in both embodied practices and um, in the psychological and talk therapy practices and combination of them both. Um, you know, whether we can have access to them, whether we have health insurance, whether we have childcare, um, whether we have transportation to get them. So, you know, we start to have more awareness and more compassion, like really deep compassion for all these factors that we might not see from our own limited experience. We might say, well, I bounced back from that. I've been through something. Uh, but when we break it down and we start to like journal about it and really think about it um, and think about our life experiences, it, it humbles us, it opens us up. And this is really important for, you know, how we walk into a space. Um, because when we walk into the space, we understand that people are coming from so many different experiences than our own. Um, then we come in with this, someone was saying in the chat, you know, this humbleness and this, um, just this not knowing, you know, we're not coming in as an expert. Um, and we start to understand the individual is the expert um, in their own self and their own healing and their own path to healing and where they want to go. You know, I think sometimes as you know, you know, in those main yoga teacher trainings, 
there's this idea that everyone wants to go to the same place. And I don't think that's really true either. And a lot of the times, the reason we come into yoga, um, you know, it changes. And we want to be open to that and open to exploring with different individuals what their reasons are, right? Um, sometimes we're going to ask that question, you know, where, where they want to go. Um, we don't know if always what environments people go back to. And just opening people up and, and taking them to these, you know, really raw, vulnerable places like you were talking about, you know, we're here. You also have to manage this. Well, if someone has to go back into the street, they have to, they have to manage that. Um, the skills they have, the boundaries they have, the, you know, the, the walls that they have to manage that, those are good. <laughs> you know, sometimes in yoga, there's, I think, the, so much leaning on that it's about opening, opening. Um, I don't think it's about that. I think it's about, ha- you know, having a balanced, receptive nervous system that can open and shut appropriately. Being just open to everything coming in, not safe. Um, so all of this is the stuff that we investigate in our in our training. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, and so incredibly well said. So this continuum of trauma, whether it's environmental, ongoing, one incident, can you talk about how trauma affects relationships? Hmm. Yeah. Um, well, the first, first thing that connects all those types of trauma, um, there's really one thing, which is a loss of agency, right? When a trauma happens, there's something happening to us that we can't stop, we can't control. And that's why there's, there's a rupture and there's a reaction, um, a traumatic response that happens in the body when it's um, because we can't, we can't get away. We can't stop it. We can't control it. And so the body does something very smart, right? So the trauma response is a brilliant, smart response to save the, the person, right? From something that is overwhelming and that they wouldn't be able to handle. Sometimes they say like too much, too fast. So, um, so the thing that's lost there is agency. And that's why the, the choice language and the reminding people of their own choice and helping them to discover, again, um, what they like and don't like is so important. Now, it may be hard to feel that after um, a trauma because um, the, the messages from the body um, so we pride ourselves in yoga, I think, and this isn't a bad thing, on like really connecting to our feelings, right? There's a lot of language around trust your God, and there's a lot of work around um, really trusting the sensations that our bodies are telling us, which is a great thing. And in a trauma response, the, the situation can be safe, right? But, but a person not feel safe, right? Hypervigilance um, or hypovigilance, they might tune out. Uh, they might go away, dissociate, or they might be um, hyper alert. And it's usually both. It, it can pendulate from one to the other. Um, and it's exhausting. And it's exhausting trying to figure out what's real, right? Um, because there was a reason to be afraid. And so to just let that barrier down, um, it takes time and it takes trust building. So um, how does it impact relationships? Well, you know, first of all, that relationship to self, right? Not not knowing what signal is right. Um, sometimes there's a lot of shame around 
the response that the body had. The body might freeze in a in a trauma, and maybe folks don't know that like that freeze that wasn't your fault. Your body did that. You know, there was nothing else that it could have done. And so, um, so there's that own that that first relationship to self. Um, and there can because of that shame, there can be high, you know, folks might hide, um, they might be embarrassed, they might, you know, try to pretend that everything's okay, not want people to know. So they might not go around to places that might be triggering. Um, there can be a lot of vulnerability around a group uh, movement and breath space like a yoga studio. Um, you know, we might be more snappy. We might be more distant. There's just so many different things that can happen. Um, we might, you know, work a lot or choose a numbing activity or substance to try to manage or self-medicate what's going on. So there's a lot of disruption that can happen in relationships feeling safe around others again. Um, that's a big one as well, you know, trusting, trusting others. So safety is also that so I've talked about first, um, recognizing all the types of trauma that can be a room. And then the, um, that agency has been taken away. And then the next thing we would talk about and work on is establishing safety because we really don't have agency before safety. And this is so important. Just telling someone, which I've seen yoga teachers try to do, like, you have a choice, you know, you can stand up or sit down. If I don't feel safe, like, I don't have a choice, right? If I feel, uh, like, judged, if I feel pressure, if I feel confusion, um, there's no choice. When we get stressed, we go into, um, you know, we get, we get pigeonholed and we um get narrow vision and or we get very binary we don't see choice we can all see this in our lives when we're stressed it's like black and white like this or that like no. when we have more relaxation we have more options and this is what we want to really work on in the yoga space is beginning to see all the choices that we have um, and so safety has to be in place for that and that comes that safety comes from setting up the room in a way that's safe, which we can talk about, or you can come to my training to learn about. Um, so room safety, it comes from how I show up in the room. So that's why this can't be taught in our training, but the work that we need to do as space holders to understand how we're showing up. Um, it comes through our language. Uh, everything that we do in that room um, is establishing that safety so that people feel free to dare to make choices that feel right to them without feeling like um, there's a preferred choice for them to make. I definitely want to come do your training. Thank you so much for articulating all of these themes and topics that we talk about in the yoga room, in trainings, in trauma-informed spaces and understanding. So when you're speaking, I'm hearing the hierarchy potentially of teacher and student. And I see that this is almost, I'm imagining like a triangle. So I'm seeing that there's agency, there's the hierarchy and there's trauma-informed facilitation or trauma-sensitive facilitation. So can you talk about this hierarchy that happens 
in teacher-student relationships and how as yoga facilitators or trauma-informed facilitators, we can dispel this hierarchy? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Thank you for that. And for the visual, um, you know, it, it, I really want to speak to that. This starts at a very young age. Um, I have a child, so I know <laughs> I've done it with her. We are, you know, when, especially when she was really little, right? if I wanted her to stand up or walk, you know, clapping for doing the right thing. <laughs> right. And so this, this, you know, teaching and it's, um, it's training, you know, it's behaviorism. So it's training and we learn to do like what society wants or what people want from us. And this pleasing is instilled in us from a very, very young age. And I'm not going to say that there's no place for it. I mean, I, like I said, I admit it to, I do it myself and um, it serves certain purposes, but it's something to be very much aware of because it's in all of us. It's in us especially when we enter any space where it's like there's a teacher and a student. It's just so ingrained in us from such a young age and it cuts us off to um, like, what do we want? And we start going into that very programmed, you know, what does the teacher want from us? It's just, we, we know those environments so deep inside of us, how we're supposed to behave. So when you come into a space with a teacher, we're going to look for what does the teacher want from us. Um, so a lot of what we do in the trauma-sensitive space is um, to really try to break that. Um, and uh, the teacher is more in an inquisitive, um, investigative role, curious role um, with the students. Like, what's showing up for you? Instead of prescriptive, like, this pose will calm you down. Um, you know, there are you know, there, there are some studies like, the, you know, forward fold might be relaxing or this or that, but, um, you know, it's not the same for everyone, right? Because if, if that was a triggering position, then there's no right or wrong position. It's how, what's showing up for you. So um, the teacher stays in a place of that, of inquiry. Um, does, they don't complement uh, some you know, some visual of some state that they want to see. It's not about that. It's about um, really celebrating all the different choices in the room. Um, there's no hierarchy of, you know, this is the pose. It's much more exploratory um, about offering some different shapes and offering like, okay, what, what might it feel like to make some different choices in those shapes? What does it feel like if I'm in a shape and I just move my attention from my breath to my gaze point. Like how might that support me? A little bit like we were doing in the beginning, right? Sometimes being in the body isn't safe. So maybe, you know, we want, we hope people can stay in the room or if they choose to leave, they can feel safe and welcome to come back in. Um, we want, we want them to have all those choices available. So sometimes people can't be in a pose because you know, the shape or there's too much focus on the breathing or there's too much focus on even the embodiment. So there are so many small offerings that we can provide. Like how about putting all your focus on your gaze point where someone can still enjoy the benefits of practice, but by moving their attention, um, they can stay in it or offering that they can move in and out. They can rock in the pose. Um, this is the great way to stay in the pose to regulate the nervous system 
Um, and again, it, it takes away from that black and white of like, you're doing it or you're not, or you're doing some modified version. We just don't, we just don't think of yoga at all like that. Yoga, as I define it, is a way, a practice which allows us to know ourselves better and therefore um, bring more uh, artfulness to our choices. Thank you. We are getting lots of comments <laughs> and, yeah. and insights too. And we can bring a couple of the questions into the Q&A, but just wanted to speak to that. And thank you for speaking to this, to the power we really hold when we're a facilitator and the awareness of the power or the potential hierarchy or the the biological want to to please the person that's facilitating. Yeah. And as teachers, we have that desire also to like do something and do. So I often talk about like the very thing that brings us in. This is something we explore in the training that like the desire to help, right? We like every positive quality about us has a negative side. It's just, it's not even, you know, it's like they say the shadow side, but it's just, this is how life is. All qualities can turn one way or the other. It's not about being good or bad. It's about being aware. And that same thing that brings people into service or helping is the same thing that can get in our way. Um, it also leads to burnout because when we're over trying or we're trying for the wrong things or we're wanting something different or more than our students want, that's where that bitterness I was talking about comes in. That's because you're not listening, right? You're trying to do something instead of just being with just being beside. And that actually is more sustainable for the teacher as well. And this is where yoga philosophy comes in because we're being attached to the outcome. Yes. And we're rescuing people, which is not empowering people. It's us thinking that we know better. Exactly. Which doesn't mean there's no role for us. Sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you. Oh, yeah. but some pe- sometimes yoga teachers hear that and they're like, well, what am I doing? <laughs> right? And I think there's still very much a role for us. Right? It doesn't mean that the things we've studied aren't important. Um, and and that, it's just that role might look a little different. So in our years of teaching and so many people in this room and this community do feel that they want to be of service and through the vehicle of yoga. So we know that we are likely going into rooms and spaces and working with communities that might have a historical or current um, high experiences of trauma. Will you talk about repair? If we were to trigger someone or, or activate in our class, can you talk about, yeah. Can you talk about repair? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let me speak to it in a few ways. Um, one thing is if someone is having a a flashback in class, um, I've rarely ever seen this happen. If all those safety protocols, um, are that we teach are put into place. So that's why we spend a lot of time on that. Um, and a lot of time on dispelling the idea that you're trying to have a breakthrough. Like, I don't believe that that's what we do as trauma sensitive yoga teachers. and, you know, there's, there, there used to be, at least in my tradition that I grew up in, like, you know, this like, thing will call people open. And sometimes yoga 
teachers and traditions really idealize this kind of big opening where I think, especially for trauma survivors, but for all of us, you know, there's a lot of, of research that shows that the nervous system, you know, if we really open, we will could snap back like a kind of like a rubber band. And that just like letting, I like that image of like letting out the steam little by little. There are these like little shifts um, that's much more sustainable and healthier, especially for a nervous system that has been intact. But let's say some, let's say uh, a flashback happens. I mean, these are very important skills for all of us to know is being at the same eye level as someone, um, not standing over anyone, not touching a person. Um, at that time, but helping them to ground into present space and time, um, which we might do by noticing color in the room or texture in the room, counting things we see, just to, to grounding exercises would bring us here. Um, and again, I just, I, you know, I spoke to it a little bit before, but it's my belief that yoga is, is a very, very helpful and healing modality, but that it's also part of a, a network of services that um, that a survivor would want. And sometimes I think because of the commercialization for um, a number of reasons, we can overpromise, overclaim. And in our classes, where we're at a facility, we also have a facility expert there um, that's going to support the teacher. So, we're, you know, just because you did a 15-hour trauma-sensitive training doesn't mean that you're you should be responsible for handling a flashback, but you should have some basic skills. Um, but there should be some other people there that can support you. Um, and then to like other harm, right? We can we can harm people in many ways, and harm happens um, when we get into real relationship. Um, you know, it, it, harm will happen. Uh, we can't we can't know everything, right? And we can't know what will trigger. Um, one person because it, it could be a word that seems so so benign you know and um the thing is to hear people if they if someone tells you that they've been harmed um is to hear them and apologize right to take ownership of that it doesn't matter if we didn't intend to it doesn't matter if our training told us that the thing that we said or did was appropriate that none of that really matters um, what matters is someone's letting you know that they were hurt and they were harmed. And that is great that they're willing and open to letting us know that. That takes a lot of bravery. Like you spoke to before, there's a lot of bravery in that. It's easier to walk away and just not talk about it, maybe not return to class. It's very hard to confront someone and tell them something that they did um, hurt you, especially if that person is a teacher. Um, so I think we can all work on, I know it's been a life work of my my own um, to hear that and um, to honor that, that person's feeling. And if they're open to it, to finding out from them, you know, how we could do better alternatives and, and then to implementing those and obviously not repeating what we did that was harmful. And, you know, if we can do that, we can really stay in that. Um, that's actually someone spoke to in the chat about not just surviving trauma, but actually post-traumatic growth is kind of what I understood their comment. Shout out, though, there's going to be someone talking about post-traumatic growth on my podcast in a few weeks. Um, 
I, I think that's such a very, very interesting um, area of study. Um, and this is like, this is where that kind of growth can happen in relationship where, you know, if any of you have ever been through that with someone, right, where you really got into it and were able to be honest and, and heal in a relationship, it can even be better than it was before. Um, but we have to be willing to um, to humble ourselves and to get out of that ego space and and to change. And I completely agree. When in conflict with someone, knowing that repair is possible or having that play out in front of you or having someone take responsibility for their actions, having a different outcome or having someone behave differently than, than someone you have been in triangulation or, or in um, a relationship with before, it's so healing. Yeah, exactly. So that person might be like waiting for you to, to play out how people always respond <laughs> with like minimalizing or, you know, denying. And when you don't do that, that's just like amazing for everyone. Right. Thank you. I hope to host you again because it's oh. just been so insightful and you're just speaking to so many of these core values that we hold at Prison Yoga Project. And so I'm just so happy for our community and the water community to be able to hear you. And yes, Beyond Trauma is your podcast as well. Yes, Beyond Trauma is my podcast. Great. At this time, I do want to give us a little extra time for questions. And so I will turn to our community here. A couple options. If you're on a desktop and you're looking at your Zoom screen, there's a little space that says Q&A. You're welcome to put your questions into there. If it's easier for you to put it in the chat, no problem. So I'll read the questions out loud and Laura will respond. And so while everyone's gathering their bravery as well and putting it into the chat or the Q&A, we did have a question. Will you tell us more about your training? Um, so I teach um, a virtual training through Three and a Half Acres Yoga. And we went virtual in the pandemic. I think it's been wonderful because we don't, this is for people who have a yoga teacher training. So you have to have a 200 hour. And since we don't use tests, there's, there's no reason that any of this can't be taught online. And it allows us to bring in teachers from from all over and people from all over. So I think it's fantastic. The next one is September 30th to October 1st. It's a, It happens over a weekend, um, but there's some really cool other things. There's some additional um, uh, guests that come in that do kind of, uh, live trainings that you can watch or uh, in real time or recorded. And then we also include as part of our training, observing our classes. So you get to come inside our classes virtually or in person um, and watch some of our senior teachers. That's a long time. They teach differently than I do. So even as a trainer, I'm like, this is the way, you know, some of them teach really widely differently than I do. So I love for our trainees to see how different teachers who I adore interpret um, the training with their own voice. And then you have a, a chance to um, co-teach with them. So practicing, teaching maybe a little part that you feel most comfortable with. And then depending on if you um, do a scholarship or do a barter, we have a lot of different tiers for how you can pay for a barter for training. You might do some volunteer hours with us. 
And there's opportunity to then get a stipend and then even move up into um, leadership roles. The idea of sustainability, right? So helping people to keep growing and um, eventually to teach others. It's a really beautiful thing. There's a lot of mentorship um, in that in that program. And um, then, you know, personally, individually, I also give this training um, where I'm called to. So sometimes I'm asked to. Um, I was asked to at a yoga uh, studio in uh, Massachusetts in October. So I'll be giving an in-person training there. I'll be in Miami in August. So sometimes um, I'm invited into studios that way. Fantastic. And can you say it again? Your your training is through three and a half acres. Yeah. So you put the the link in there. That's great. And then all the trainings that I'm giving or workshops that I'm giving are on my personal site, which you also dropped in there. Thank you so much. Okay. Fantastic. Thank you for the clarity. While we're waiting for questions to roll in, I will say, are there any aspects of relationships or trauma or trauma-sensitive yoga that we didn't touch on today that you were really excited to talk about? Oh, um, what did we talk about? Um, just like scanning through my book. I'm like, what, what chapters did we miss? <laughs> um, there, I mean, there, there are many aspects to the practice of yoga that are specifically um, lovely for survivors. Things like confidence building, which you talked about, um, having fun, you know, play. Play is very healing. Um, and laughter and being silly. So you'll see some of our yoga teachers incorporating more of that aspect. Sometimes we can get very serious in yoga and think it's all about concentrating. Um, but there's this aspect of play, which I think is very healing. It is silly, um, you know, putting our bodies in different shapes. So we can acknowledge that. We don't have to be so serious in the room. Um, you might find, just like I found in Rwanda, there's like a lot of laughter that's part of, you know, it's just kind of relief. Um, so, you know, if you notice your students are, if you're in a, especially in a, in a trauma-sensitive environment and the students are chatting or laughing um that's normal and it's part of the release there there are some skills to learn though around holding groups this isn't one-on-one and um you were supposed to a little but not really but when there's been a trauma there's a, a boundary that's been breached and feeling boundaries again um can be really confusing and so um, we didn't talk about like you know prefrontal cortex offline and so social norms are a lot different so there's a lot of stuff around navigating, sharing, and, um, you know, how you want to create group agreements in the space that there can be this letting go, but also you're in a group space. So uh, that's stuff you learn in the training, but also through a lot of practice. <laughs> and I see there's a question about my book. I would love to shout my book out. So it, it, it's off my website, um, but it's called The, the Essential Guide to Trauma-Sensitive Yoga. It's all linked there. Oh, you put it there as well. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll have the, all of these links as well in the recording. So if you're listening to this at a later date, you can check the description and we'll have all of the links in there as well. We have a question. What suggestions do you have for closing practices that prepare participants to re-enter whatever environment they are returning to after session? Awesome question. Yeah, great question. But the first thing I would just say is with 
you know, closing or resting pose, you know, sometimes it's called Shavasana, I'm not sure we don't call it that, but um, is that would take on all different shapes, right? People could be seated, standing. It's not that they have to lay down flat on the back. So, um, you know, they might choose a more alert position to rest in. Um, and then with those talking people through that final rest, um, in a trauma-sensitive environment, we wouldn't leave a really, really long silence in. Um, that kind of, when you have hypervigilance, that like long silence can just make folks more on edge. It's like they don't know how long that's going to be. Um, and so your voice serves as an anchor. Um, so we we talk through the whole thing. That keeps people a little bit more there. You know, um, you might have experienced this. I mean, sometimes people's voices are very relaxing, but a lot of times I know for myself, like, you know, I'm going to keep kind of coming a little bit closer to that surface if I hear someone's voice. Um, so they're not as long. We're not doing like a really, really long. Um, so I'm going to be talking through it. And then uh, just leaving more time for people to adjust, coming back into the room a little bit. I did that with you. It's a somatic practice, turning the head, looking what colors do you see behind you. So re-surfacing um, in the room very intentionally. You might rub hands together. You might feel on your body, rubbing your thighs. Um, and you might give folks like, you know, one word to end class, right? So that's kind of a way to say it. Uh, a sharing container where, like I said, often where there's been trauma, there might be someone that just talks for a really long time or their shares could be triggering. So you're managing that with something like, okay, a word, a color for how you feel. Um, it doesn't have to be literal. So the things like that you can do. And then you might, you know, you might make yourself available for a few minutes after just being there. If people need to talk or um, have some just uh, processing before they leave. Thank you. I really love these tools or ideas of closing space. I know the participant that asked this this question, and I know that they facilitate inside prisons. And so I I have a feeling that this is also related to this idea of really opening people up and then understanding that they might need to close back down to go into the prison. Can you hear me? Did you drop? I lost my sound. Can you hear me? I can hear you. I can hear me. Oh, no, I can hear you. <laughs> okay. No problem. Perfect. Hi, so <laughs> I'll, I'll start from the beginning. I know that the participant that asked that question teaches in, in a prison. And so there is what you spoke to before of, of that so many yoga teachers want people to open. And that's not the case. And that's not really like best protocol or, or best practice for people that are in a currently traumatizing, violent space. Would you speak a little bit more to facilitating when you know that people are still in active trauma? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I mean, focus more on resilience building or capacity building. Um, so perhaps taking us a little bit into a challenging position physically that's going to bring some of that up and how, um, so we're starting to feel like maybe imbalanced, nervous, 
And then working with what are some things that we can do to um, be okay within that not okayness. So it might be moving in and out of the posture. Um, It might be working with really intentional grounding, feeling the feet on the ground, pressing into the feet, not just feeling them, but activating the legs, using a lot of standing poses, which give us a really strong foundation. Um, So things like that, um, you know, building, feeling more into our strength, um, but that kind of um, maybe a different interpretation of strength, not a strength that's like really rigid and tight, but how can we be feel into our strength and our ability to move. So sometimes um, something like squatting can be good for that. Depends. I mean, all this is very, um, you know, specific to each individual, what's going to feel right um, and grounding and, you know, appropriate in their bodies. But those are some, some of the ideas that I would use. Thank you so much for continuing further on it. The next, I've got two more questions and they're really asking the same thing. So one's asking, you did work in shelters. Can you say something more about finding a quiet space or an appropriate space or an ideal space for yoga? Next question, next question is, can you offer some guidance for redirecting participants in incarcerated spaces when there's jangling keys and correctional officers? So I'm seeing this, this theme that's happening of keeping people in the space maybe yeah when you teach yoga and shelter and food bank it's like a live kitchen sometimes there's just people coming in and out shelters tend to be very loud um you know i mean first of all from a technical thing if this is you and you're like i want to start a yoga program at a local shelter, you know, you want to go, there there are a lot of things in the last chapter of my book about questions that you should ask before you start something on your own, you know, to help you figure out if it's really sustainable, but, you know, you do a site visit and you try to see what's really available. Um, You know, often we don't have space for mats. We do, we practice with the chairs. Um, There, we work with the facility best that we can. So the more of the kind of, stakeholders or people with power within the facility that you can get on board, Um, you know, and what's the expression? Like you get more bees with honey or something like sometimes it does involve, you know, working with people who you might be like ideologically opposed to or have your judgments um, about. um, And if you can find your ways to like, seeing the trauma in them and their trauma response and um, that sort of humbleness and curiosity we were talking about, you can get more of those people on board. It's going to be a more pleasant experience for you um, if you can find a way. And sometimes it's speaking their language. I mean, we, we didn't get into this today and there's really not enough time, but I've done a lot of work with the NYPD. Um, and a lot of that was about speaking their language. I couldn't come and talk to them about you know, yoga is going to soften your trigger response, you know, like that was, that would be appealing to them, right? I had to talk to them and to what they're dealing with. Um, you know, maybe that guard knowing that on the side, like this is actually going to make them easier to deal with. You know, you might have to do some of that double talk to just like help get people on board. It's not always pleasant, but it's part of it and it can bring more people in. But otherwise, I mean, these are a lot of places. I, you know, there's a, 
a lot of work that we can do in meditation around bringing the sounds in instead of pushing them out. Um, personally, I personally do a lot of meditation with eyes open because again, the practice is not just about retreating from the world, but it's how we are alive and in relationship. So if you need to be in like a totally silent eyes closed place in order to meditate or like get to that space, it's not really, that's not the practice that's really serving you in the real world. I mean, we all know people that do hour long seated eyes closed meditation go out in the real world and are like mean to people. So we have to figure out how to feel what's here, what's happening here as we're talking to someone. And I I think of that as like a little string. And then you can feel how like the vibration of their voice is impacting you um, and how to work with that. I think that's a lot what the practice is about. And we can do that with any sounds that are arising. I completely agree. And I'll speak to it a little bit as well. You touched on it. That the distractions are part of the practice. Make it part of the practice. I know that when you know we're in the facility for an hour out of their 24-hour day, it's also unlikely that they're getting quiet time in other spaces of the prison or jail as well. So Maybe they're used to it. Maybe it's their first time. Maybe they just got into the jail. And so using the distractions, and I think sometimes speaking to it in class as well and keeping it lighthearted or bringing a laughter if something is crazy or there's something ridiculous happening, like like laugh about it. And that's okay and acknowledging it. Yeah. And thank you for this response too, because it is something... um, that we see a lot in, in the prison. But what I, what I will say is that, so I was going in with our executive director, Bill Brown to RJD, which is a prison at the border of California and Mexico. And so he started this program now over 10 years ago. And part of this work is the consistency and the commitment to continually show up The people that are around you will start to shift. They will see your dedication. They will see the shift in the participants. And that immediately brings a sense of respect and honoring. It's not going to happen overnight. But if you just continue to show up with that sweetness and that kindness and that acknowledgement, the the environment will shift. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And we do have time for some more questions. So you're welcome to drop a few more in. We did mention the book and we dropped a, the link for Lara's book as well. So we'll just give it one more minute, get a couple more questions in there. People are happy again and people are requesting your presence again, Lara. So we'll have to have you on next year. And while we wait for a couple more questions to roll in. Great. So true how consistency builds trust and commitment to continue in the program. Absolutely. With with the nonprofit, we try to um, place two teachers in every class. And even though often our classes are small. um, And that's to help with that because we know Teachers move on, they're freelance, things happen, or someone gets sick. So it's great in these, especially in these environments that we're teaching in, 
to have a second teacher. It also teaches us a lot working with a partner. Um, it's also great for you know one person talking, one person demonstrating, or if you if you have people doing stuff on a wall, on a chair, on the floor, you can have you know two different visuals. Um, so we try to pair teachers up when possible. I, I love that. That's really supportive for PYP facilitators too. Um, just sh- sharing the space and then also giving people more time to connect with facilitators after class and create and relationships, right? I feel like that's something that we touched on a little bit, but creating and maintaining relationships in these spaces are so healing and it's such a foundation of the work. Yeah. Can you say something more about how a posture or practice might trigger a trauma response? Great question. Yeah. Um, So where to start? (laughs) Um, Anything can trigger a trauma response. Um, It's it's often something unpredictable or unexpected. but particularly, you know, you're you're getting into maybe a quiet space or mentality and you're starting to look inward and some of the normal distracting activities that one might do to push off um, a response, you know, like keeping really busy or moving and then you're suddenly still can kind of trigger um the body. So there's lots of things that we do to protect ourselves. And, and often many of those are kind of stripped away from us in, in yoga practice where we're um, coming into stillness and all of a sudden like memories can start rushing back. Um, or it might be, you know, we're stretching into a part of the body or putting the mind into part of the body where the, the trauma is being held. I'm sure many of you here are like familiar with um, you know, the concept of the trauma being held in the body. So, um, and it might not be like a place where the physical trauma happened. It can be anywhere where the body locked up and it's just holding that memory and keeping it away. And now suddenly you've gone in there um, and it starts to, to come out. Um, So that's kind of why um, that can happen. Um, And it's not a good or bad thing if if a person is ready and they want to explore and um, work on releasing some of that holding because it's not serving them anymore. Um, because the things that protect us also keep us from feeling. So when we when we're shut off from feeling hard or bad things, we're also shut off from feeling a lot of pleasure and joy um, and there can possibly come a time in a survivor's journey where they realize that the things that their body is doing to protect them, they want to say, you know, thank you. Thank you, body, you know, because that's really survival and I appreciate it. And I'm ready to um, start letting go of some of that. Um, But um, going into those places with our, just with our minds or via stretching or pose, attention, breath, um, can start to release some of that that holding, um, and we want to have some 
Um, we want to, first of all, be able to normalize that as a teacher. When you see that release happening, you don't want to like run over, like, oh my God, it's like, it's normal that this could happen and would happen. Um, you know, you don't want to single anyone out that they feel like everyone is watching them. Um, and at the same time, you might want to, in a very subtle way, let them know that you see them and you're with them. So it's a balance. A lot of this stuff is very subtle that you get better at the more you're teaching. Um, but normalizing, being with, um, and allowing for um, folks to have tools to um, titrate that release. So that might be like, I did it a little bit. I didn't do the full meditation on it, but it could be that there's a safe place in the body. And we go back to that place and then move back into that more triggering area and then go back and forth, um, which is called pendulation. And that's normal. The body actually does this naturally. It's not something that we're like, we're just helping it along. Our body naturally opens and closes. Um, our pupils open and close our blood vessels. So there's lots of this happening in the body and it's very natural and it actually helps the nervous system to regulate so they can move from safe place to a more triggering place um, and helping the body along to release that, um, that memory or that um, trauma um, in a way that feels like safe and supported. Thank you. Great questions and ideas. I am reminded about being present and mindfully. My intention is so important in what happens next. I am so inspired by this talk and has been a boost to my journey further along this path. Thank you, Blair and Laura, and all of you here. We are all right now ripping into the world, rippling into the world, such goodness and healing. Pretty cool. I totally agree, Bob. This is the highlight of my week every time that we do this. And it's always just so deeply inspiring to get together as a community because so many of us, I think, are doing this work maybe on our own or in small teams. And so for all of us really all around the world that are coming here together, um, thank you. Yeah, thank you. We also have, in my experience, it has been a very delicate balance between supporting an individual who is feeling triggered without attracting unwanted or unsafe attention. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And thank you for that really beautiful and thoughtful response to that question as well. I see there's a question about front-loading the class participants from Cindy Liu. Thank you. We, it looks like we got a couple... All at the same time. Okay. On this topic of triggered responses, do you front load your class participants that this can happen? Or do you find it is better to not mention it? Do you and how do you share this information with participants? Great question. Questions. Thank you. Um, and as with all these kind of questions, there's no like right or wrong or one answer because each group is so different. Um I, I would say for our classes, the ones that I teach and the ones that I train my teachers in, um, as I mentioned before, we don't have a lot of triggering because the safety is something that we really put in place. So I don't need to like tell people like you're likely to get triggered in this class. Even that language is um, 
Pokemon triggering can be triggering and, um, and so forth. Um, but I might weave in, you know, that we're working with, you know, our bodies and lots of things can happen. If you're feeling sensations, that's normal. It's your, um, you're welcome to stay with them and breathe through them or to choose one of these other options, like moving out, coming out of the pose, coming back into the pose. And again, all these choices are um, totally great. And I'll just, I will celebrate everyone, you know, making choices to stop what they're doing. Um, it's really about celebrating folks, um, deciding not to go into something that's too triggering as well. So, um, again, often people don't really believe or feel that. So we have to, um, celebrate all the choices, try not to compliment one person or one example because compliments are really harmful. Um, so that's, that's a little example of how I'll, I'll weave it in. Um, just so folks know that it's normal for things to come up in yoga. We sort, you know, store stuff in our body. If it's like a group that might be open to hearing that, or maybe where we're going a little, we've been working together, going a little deeper and I might be starting to see things, Um, but I'll do it in a kind of a little bit of a casual way because I also don't want people to think that a lot of people feel nothing, which is also a trauma response and very normal. So you also don't want to get in a situation where folks are feeling like I'm not having a release. I'm not feeling anything. Um, all of it is okay. All of it is normal. All of it is celebrated in class. Lots of different things can happen and they're all cool here. So well said. And really just coming back to that, create priming the space for safety and coming back to this piece of agency and choice. Yeah. You can come out of a pose at any point in time and really embodying that and meaning that and not responding in the class when someone does come out early or whatever the, whatever the case is, is just really priming that space of agency, choice, choice, choice. So that when people, you know, when people might start to feel activated in that way, they know that they can release. Exactly. You know, and I might say, I, you know, if I'm, if I'm doing taking postures, I might say, you know, I'm coming out of this now, like I'll be doing that myself. I'm taking a break. Then I'm going to try to go back in. So I'm kind of showing how I'm doing it. Um, and that people are in control of their own experience. Thank you so much for joining us today. I always give the guest an opportunity to speak to anything that hasn't been spoken to or to leave any wisdom with our audience. So yeah, if there's anything that hasn't been said, we've got, thank you. I see how it's all about sharing the choices that they have from the start. Really love the celebrating where people are at in the moment. Yes. Thank you, Cindy. But yeah, Lara, if there's anything that hasn't been said, the mic is yours. Uh, well, first of all, I just thank you so much for this opportunity and to speak to your community. And thank you to all the people who showed up and spoke so warmly in the chat. 
Um, it really filled my day <laughs> um, to hear your insightful comments and just that this has been useful to you. You know, um, that that feels really great. I'm I'm glad that I could share some useful information. Um, it sounds like many of you, all of you, are doing some really great work yourselves, um, and I'm looking forward to hearing your stories and following you all. And, um, you know, I guess I would just leave with that uh, again, that the trauma response is a, um, a brilliant response. Um, and it needs to be honored that the, whoever said like honoring where people are in the moment, um, and, uh, yeah, celebrating where people are in the moment, Cindy Lou, like, that's really what I love to leave you with is not, um, not, trying to change people, um, trying to change people doesn't really help them to change. Um, but acknowledging people where they are in the moment and, um, loving them as they are and seeing them as they are, um, and teaching them to, to offer that up, that up to themselves, um, that the responses that they're having, the places they're shut off, the, um, the things that are triggering them, all of that is, um, it's all the body's brilliant response and it's all normal and it's all beautiful. Um, and just where they are, is just right. And ironically, you know, it's when people are accepted where they are that they're actually most able to change. So that's where we want to be. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, everyone.